This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, how are you today? On the show today, between now and one, some prime Western Australian farmland has just hit the market and the asking price is $90 million plus. It's exactly where anyone would want to be if they want to get to land land processing, if they want to get to a port, uh, if they want to get to a livestock selling centre. It's about as blue as blue chip gets. I wonder where that is. Do you know? Can you guess? I'll let you have a think about that. Also today, a big new sheep feedlot has just been given the green light to be built in the state's southwest. This is, it will be a staged build. So we have an induction shed that will have a capacity of 9,500 head that will be operational within a few months. And then we've got to work on the next sheds. There's another two sheds to get built that are bigger than that to give us an ultimate capacity of 27,750 at one time. More detail on that new sheep feedlot shortly. But first, speaking of sheep, the latest annual figures on livestock movement through sale yards in Australia is showing a 23% drop in sheep volumes through Muche and the Catanning sale yards. Nationally, 13 million sheep and 3.7 million head of cattle went through sale yards right across the country last financial year. About half of those sheep were sold in New South Wales alone. And while numbers look pretty stable in the east, Western Australia had the biggest fall for sheep movements. Matt Dalgleish is a livestock market analyst with Episode 3. Matt, WA sheep sold at the yards. It's dropped from 1.12 million to 860,000 head that's a 23% drop. What does that tell you about the number of sheep on farms here in Western Australia? Uh, look, I guess it says more about the changing dynamic of the the choices that producers are making. I'm not sure if it tells us just yet that we're seeing a decline in the flock in um, WA. We're going to have to wait for the ABS numbers there, Belinda, when they're released. But um it certainly shows that there's been a change in the choices that producers are making in terms of how they're offloading stock. And this has been actually ongoing for a few years. We saw about 11% fall the previous year and then a 9% fall the year by, before, that, before that for sheep going into the sale yard. So three years in a row of declining numbers and this one's a big one this year. So what what is going on there? People and, and producers are choosing to go direct to the processor rather than through the sale yards? And, and is that because they're getting better money? Uh, look, I think it's, it's, it's part of it's actually around a bit of tr- price transparency. There has been an app that's been released a little a few years back now, uh, Agora, that, that, that provides grid pricing both for the Western Australian producers but also in the eastern states. And so that's allowing a lot more price discovery to compare pricing um, for the farmer too, when they're taking animals to the sale yard, you're never sure what the price is you're going to get. So sometimes it can be better than what you're being offered direct, but sometimes not. And it's a bit of that security of knowledge uh, that you can book it in in advance. Uh, you can lock away your margin, so to speak. And in times that it's been you know, quite volatile um, with a lot of things changing this year, um, you know, that demonstrates that having comfort in some level of pricing you, know, you can be sure of. Uh, makes makes life easier for the farmer and those apps that are out there now are making that price discovery easier so 
I think it is encouraging um, more direct uh, transactions for sure. And do you think this part of the catalyst for that, for going online, has been the COVID factor, some of those movement restrictions that we had in place at certain lockdown points? Did that sort of push some producers online and they kind of liked it and stayed there? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. There, there was a time there, I'm sure it was the case in WA as well as in the East, that um, the producer couldn't go to the sale yards, couldn't attend, they could still send their animals in. Um, but I think it did encourage a few to consider using online platforms, uh, consider doing more direct, and they've found that you know that works to their business and uh, and they like that you know, security of knowing the price. And, and sometimes in some cases with uh, going direct, you can get a price a couple of months out in advance. Um, so that all helps you know when you're kind of trying to plan and budget. Um, and, and, yeah, I think they've become much more used to it since COVID and, and they've liked it and so have remained. What about producer to producer? Is that increasing? Uh, we see, well, certainly um, volumes, if you look at a, a platform like Auctions Plus, which does a lot of the producer to producer, um, that's facilitating that direct exchange too. Obviously, the agents are involved in that platform as well, so they're helping to facilitate that. Um, and, and definitely Auctions Plus has seen increased volumes post-COVID or through COVID, and it looks like they've retained those increased volumes as well. Um, so, you know, it's just adding to the options, I guess, for the producer. They don't have to um, rely just on the sale yard. Now, you mentioned earlier, Matt, that you, you're not sure whether this reflects what's going on with the size of the flock here in Western Australia, and we have to wait until we see those numbers officially released by the ABS to find out whether that's true. But also looking at um, the, the sort of figures going through the processes, that'd be a, a good indication too. It is, it is. And we've certainly, I mean, if you're talking to a few um, processes in WA as well, we do know that they have seen some increased volumes going through direct. Um, they do have some cap- capacity constraints around labour though. That's that's the big, I guess, stumbling block at the moment or the big hurdle is that they have got probably some still spare capacity in terms of plant capacity, but it's the labour that's holding them up and they do need some help trying to get that labour secured. And, and certainly the, the government's trying to do their best there, I guess, but um, there, there still needs to be more done. Um, you know, and, and, that's, and that's one of those hurdles that, you know, that needs to be overcome if, if we're going to start to continue to see the flock grow. Um, um, like you're saying, we're, we're waiting on those numbers to see. The, the other aspect, I guess, that's not really been spoken about yet um, is... With the high cost of fertiliser, particularly, um, there are some mixed farmers in WA that are questioning whether, you know, they continue to pour money into that with with high cost of fertilizer and growing crops or whether they're looking across and thinking, well, I can expand my livestock operation, that side of the business. So, you know, we're seeing really good seasons in terms of rainfall. So that is encouraging the flock and the herd both to rebuild. Um, and, and that other thing is that high cost of fert may be making some croppers consider to increase, you know, what they're doing in livestock. Well, Marty's just text through saying that I'm going to be out of a job soon, replaced by an app, Matt. So, you know, that's the future. You'll be talking through an app. <laughs> well, we might, you know, that could be the Look, I think you'll, you always need to have that human contact, but, you know, I don't think we're all going to be replaced by robots just yet, Belinda. But, you know, there's a risk that even, you know, God, God forbid the uh, radio announcer, you know, if we get this, uh, this voice technology up to scratch. But um, hopefully it's, it's many years before that happens. Do you think, I mean, is Western Australia leading the way on this in terms of a real change in the way, you know, the, the, the transaction of sheep, how sheep are sold, bought and sold? Oh, I think, don't think West Australia lead the way on most things. Well, of course. That, it's a rhetorical as a, as question. A, <laughs> <laughs> as a person from the eastern states, I'm, I'm actually coming across the WA again next month, so I have to make sure I say the right thing here. But, look, certainly given the fact that you, you are remote geographically, 
I think that some of that remoteness means that, you know, people in WA have to be resourceful. Um, and I think, you know, looking at alternative ways in which to do business is something you guys are really good at. So yeah, for sure, um, I think there's an element there that, that, that you guys are looking at all those different technological advances to make life easier and it makes it much more um, you know, relevant when you are as isolated as you guys, you guys are geographically. What about numbers going east? Uh, this year there's been far less, so they're back to more normal levels. Um, if you look at um, last year, I think there was about 675,000 head that, that went from west to east. The year prior uh, was 1.9 million, so there was quite a few, but the demand there on the east has kind of come off a bit. Um, and I think this year now, up until September, there was about 90,000 head only that had gone across. I think uh, October we saw a few big shipments going across east, you know, 20,000 or so. Um, but, but when you compare it to those previous two years, it's, it's nothing like we saw there. So that's not really a, an alternative for turnoff just presently for the WA producer. And look, we've been, you know, really focusing on sheep in Western Australia sale yards because that's the real standout figure. Those numbers have dropped by 23% going through the sale yards. In comparison, the cattle numbers fell by just 4%. Does that, what, what does that say? To you. Uh, yeah, look, it's it, it, you know, and that's I guess you know one of those things where whether the cattle producers are finding they're still getting some benefit going via the sale yard. I, I noted um, last year as well the numbers for cattle um, going via the sale yard in WA were, were pretty flat. They hadn't changed at all from from the previous year. So um, you've gone to have no change to have only a small reduction. So it's an interesting dynamic to see why um, the sheep producer specifically is shutting the sale yards. Um, you know, whether, whether there's, you know, part because, um, you know, when you're going and, and having cattle going through the sale yard, they're getting weighed individually, they've got ear tags, you know, getting, getting kind of scanned. So is the process more simpler for them and, and a bit more problematic for bigger mobs of sheep and not having tags and having them running through as a mob, maybe more paperwork? Um, that could be part of it. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a tricky one to see exactly what's behind that. Well, good to get your thoughts on it today on The Country I'm at. Good to talk to you. Cheers, Belinda. Matt Dalgleish, he's a livestock market analyst from episode three. It is a quarter past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. We'll check in with the newsroom around about half past 12 and then it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Um, Meanwhile, speaking of sheep, there is some big money that's being spent in the sheep industry at the moment. Uh, one investment in particular, a southwest farmer has been given approval to build the biggest sheep feedlot in the region with a holding capacity of just under 28,000 head. The application for the $7 million build was approved by the Joint Development Assessment Panel earlier this week. Boyanup farmer Alan Garstone plans to turn over 250,000 sheep each year once the feedlot is fully operational. We're very happy. We, you know, we've put a huge amount of work you know, from the family and all the people that have been supporting us and helping us. Colossal amount of work to get to this point. So yeah, it's a great result. So when do you expect the feed lot to be up and running and you know going at full capacity? Full capacity is a fair way away. This is, it will be a staged build. So we have an induction shed that will have a capacity of 9,500 head that will be operational within a few months. And then we've got to work on the next sheds. There's another two sheds to get built that are bigger than that to give us an ultimate capacity of 27,750 at one time. So um, around 250,000 sheep a year you'll be moving. So what's this going to mean for the industry here? So at the 
like the sheep industry has needed um, sheep feed lots very strongly over in the past. At the moment, we've got supply constraints. Oh, well, not supply constraints. We've got delivery constraints, but they'll get resolved by the time we we've actually got it built. Mm. Um, it's a it's a great thing for the industry to have another another option to sell to. I know most feedlots don't even have roofs over them. So the actual design of this shed. Did you base it off of something else or how did you come up with that design? Um, so we've built a, a small shed quite a few years ago. That We built that with the idea to see whether we were actually happy with the, with the welfare of sheep in sheds. You know, where the industries had, had shedded sheep, you know, mainly the live export industry, but the feedlot industry set a couple of examples of it. So we built that to satisfy ourselves and we're very satisfied. We've had multiple times there where you go there and the gates have been opened. Sheep are quite good at opening gates by themselves. The sheep, you can see tracks, they've been out of the shed, they're all back in the shed. They, they think the shed's the best place to be. And at the JDAP meeting, there was obviously presentations against having this feedlot here. And I understand RSPCA also made a submission. So what's your response to those animal welfare concerns, you know, having that number of sheep in this sort of area? Um, our stocking rate within the sheds is still modest. Um, we, you know, we're got the idea that we're building big sheds so we don't have to pack them in. Um, it might sound like a reasonably large number, but, it, but it's actually not spread over the area. Um, so each lamb's got plenty of room to move and they're in mo- uh, modest-sized pens, so it's really good for their welfare. We know from the experience we've had with sheds that lambs love being in sheds. Um, you know, the weather's always as mild as it can be at any given point in time and they've got plenty of food, plenty of water and nothing to chase them or upset them. Pulling up sheep farmer Alan Garstone speaking to Georgia Hargreaves about getting approval to build the biggest sheep feedlot in the southwest. 18 past 12. Well, not everyone's happy about this feedlot being built. Local environmentalist Michael Tichbon is worried the nearby river systems will become overrun with nitrogen. It's in the Gindernup catchment of the Cable River which is already, the whole catchment of the Gindernup Brook is already overloaded with nutrients and placing a big sheep feedlot in the catchment, it doesn't matter how careful they are, nutrients are going to get into the water and further overload the water that flows down into the Capel River and out to the sea and is killing the seagrass off Capel in particular Uh, The nitrogen level there is twice as high as uh, anywhere else. It just uh, needs a big area away from other residences so that they won't be interfered with the the smell, noise and dust. And it's just not available. The the buffer from this place um, needs to be quite substantial and it would can't overlap other people's properties and interfere with their lifestyle. Boyne Up Environmentalist and Lower Blackwood Land Conservation District Committee founder Michael Tichbon with Georgia Hargreaves. You can read more of the story. It's online for you right now. All you need to do is search ABC Sheep Feedlot and you can read through Georgia's story. Just search ABC Sheep Feedlot to read through. 20 past 12. It's been a fairly sheep-heavy First half hour, hasn't it? And it continues right now because the eight-hour merino lamb shearing world record was broken yesterday at Boyart Brook when Cohen Black shearing 604 lambs. 604 
lambs. You heard that right. Cohen was born in New Zealand but grew up in Esperance and shearing runs in his blood and his family has been involved in shearing records for decades now. He says yesterday's feat was a real team effort and that there are a lot of emotions running at the moment. 20 years ago, my brother set the World Merino Lamb Shearing Record at 570. And yesterday, I sure 604 in eight hours and beat the record by 34. Gosh, yeah. how do you feel? It was, it was pretty surreal, quite overwhelming when we finished because our family's been in record shearing for the last two or three decades. My father and brother have been heavily involved in a lot of world record attempts and then for them to come together and do one for me it was yeah pretty surreal yeah so you had the support of your brother and your father there as well yeah yeah and a lot of other people there's so many people that came in to help me and because there's a lot of setup that goes on behind the scenes like i might have shown and my name's on the on the certificate but it's not my record it's everybody's record they all chipped in i wouldn't have done it without them all so what was the mood like afterwards it was yeah yeah emotional painful everything but we, we're all just happy and relieved that it was all over because it's been such a long road to get to where we are i've been training for the last four months and away shearing a lot so away from a family and stuff dedicating myself to do this and yeah it's finally all over and my kids and my wife and everyone's happy about that, that we can go back to being normal for a bit so what sort of thing goes into the preparation for a record attempt like this so yeah obviously i stopped drinking about four or five months ago and then um, I've been doing quite a lot of gym work. I've been mainly rowing, lots of rowing and a few weights, heaps of cardio work and stretching and well, drinking plenty of water, to be honest. It's there. And then obviously lots of shearing goes into it as well. How's the body feeling today? Yeah, good. I'm not too bad. I thought I was going to be a lot sore than I am, but I'm feeling pretty good, yeah. And what was your average? What were you hitting? I did 154 first run and then 151. The second run, because we, we ended up losing one the second run, that um, wasn't it was over the limit, so we lost it. And then 152, the third run. But that's when the, the body started cramping up the third run, and it was a bit of, yeah, a bit of pain started happening then. But lucky to have my massage girl at smoker time, and she ironed out all the knots and brought me over the, the last run with 147. So, yeah. Your own massage girl? Yeah, yeah a good friend of mine, her partner was doing my shearing gear on the day and then he was doing massages for me at smoking and lunchtime and getting in and out of, I was in the spa then in the cold pool and stuff to remove the lactic acid and get the breathing and the core temperature down but yeah it was an awesome day everybody came together to help me I was just yeah feel so humbled by it yeah. How does it feel to beat your brother like this? There's not so much a rivalry between us he was proud as I was present why not you be the one to break it? Nobody's even attempted it since he said it 20 years ago. So, And you said that you felt quite emotional during some moments there. What, what did that feel like? What conjured that sort of emotion? Oh, just, you know, you get a glance of your kids and your wife screaming at you because they can see you're in pain and telling you to come on, carry on. And it finds another level inside you that you didn't know you had. It sort of unlocks a lot of things, eh? Eight hours, yeah. that's like a marathon. See, it was a good, good long day, but yeah, I enjoyed it. Every minute of it, we're already talking about doing another one again next year. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Which one's next? Uh, so my brother, he also holds the nine-hour slam record, so you get an extra hour. 
which is 664. So we're looking at that. Congratulations, Cohen Black. He is the new eight-hour Merino lamb shearing world record holder. Uh, the record broken at Boyart Brook yesterday, and Cohen got through 604 lambs to claim that record. He was speaking to Sophie Johnson about that. Well done. 25 past 12. A couple of texts through just on what you've been hearing so far and looking at the number of sheep going through the sale yards here in Western Australia. Numbers way down to the end of financial year this year, uh, down by about 23%. In response to that, Andrew says... Here we are post-COVID and paying the price with lower market prices, one reason being abattoir labour constraints and the federal and state governments wanting to phase out live export. Time to resolve labour issues are well overdue, says Andrew. And also in response to the news that a southwest farmer has just been given approval to build the biggest sheep feedlot in the region in the southwest. A couple of responses through on that from Peter. The RSPCA didn't like the feedlot. Imagine my shock. Sheltered workshop for animal activists. The idea of it killing seagrass doesn't sound real science-based. To Peter anyway. And Marty, always someone who wants to have a bloody whinge. 0448 922 604. It is 26 past 12. A prime piece of Western Australian farming land has just hit the market and is expected to fetch over $90 million. Sherylton Farms is an 8,554 hectare diversified cropping and livestock property based at Cogenup in the state's Great Southern. It's currently owned by Julian Walter, who owns the JWH Group, one of the largest residential building groups in Western Australia. Danny Thomas is Senior Director at LAWD, the company handling the sale of this property. Danny, why is the property up for sale? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, people obviously have lots of different motivations. It's obviously a great time to be taking a marquee asset like this to market. Um, you know, um, Mr Walter's a guy um, who's achieved lots of things in business. Um, they've built a fantastic asset here. Uh, all the work's done, uh, which they've done over 14 years. And so, look, I think it's it's probably just time. Can you take us for a little look around the property, the size, the scale, the sort of plant machinery equipment, the, the livestock too that's on this property? Yeah, so, it's, so it's about 8,500 hectares, of which a little under 7,500 hectares we'd regard as effective area, uh, arable and arable grazing. Uh, it's a genuine mixed farm. They've done a great job of allocating land types to the appropriate land use, very high yielding crops, you know, good production history, uh, 15,000 ewes, um, merinos and composites being sold with the property, uh, also a promise, prominent Angus herd, the remnants of the stud, um, 170 head. It's just one of those places, Belinda, where the, the guys, Mike, the manager, and Julian and family as the owners have really spared no expense and just done everything right at every turn. And you don't get to see that very often where people have have just done it properly all the way through. What about the timing of this, though, Danny? I mean, rising interest rates, the, the cost of energy going up, fuel through the roof, fertiliser prices through the roof, grain prices aren't quite what 
you know, growers here in Western Australia would like anyway. So doesn't that equal less interest in farmland and, and downward pressure on land values? Yeah, I could understand why people's intuition are telling them that, you know, we're, we're in more difficult times or going into more difficult times. I don't think that's the sentiment, though. And look, one of the things that I think, uh, if I can say this respectfully, that the market there in WA suffers from is is that sort of, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. And I, I wonder whether or not everyone over there understands where they sit in a national context and even in an international context. You know, WA wheat belt and, uh, and your mixed farms are still regarded as, you know, exceptionally good value for money when they're compared to East Coast Australian properties or the value of land internationally. And so I think you're going to continue to see significant volumes of outside money, particularly for scale assets like this, you know, stuff that's getting into the, you know, high tens of millions or 100 million. You're going to continue to see significant quantums of money wanting to go into WA and get set in that market. And, you know, they're long-term investors, you know, they're sort of short-term effects of commodity prices, the bumps in the road, you know, cost of debt and whatever else. They're, they're less influential to that source of capital than, than perhaps it is to some of the locals. Now, usually I have to ask you, you know, three times how much you think properties are going to be worth, but this time you just boldly put it out there in the $90 million sort of ballpark area. Why have you done that? Yeah. I think it'll be high 90s. Um, so we're saying 90 plus. Um, we're very confident on this one, Belinda. It's it's absolutely blue chip. It's exactly where anyone would want to be if they want to get to land processes, land processing if they want to get to a port, uh, if they want to get to a livestock selling centre. It's about as blue as blue chip gets at scale. And I think we're going to have a list as long as our arm of, of prospective purchases. So just to uh, kind of put that figure, that $90 million plus figure in perspective, I mean, when was the last time a property, you know, sold in that ballpark in Australia? Oh, that was the Mimigara property that Smarts sold in Western Australia. I think that holds the record in your market. But, you know, there are $100 million plus properties selling in other parts of Australia all the time. Yeah, wow. Okay. Uh, well, um, someone here in Western Australia won the Powerball last night, so they could be in the running for this if they're if they're interested. You might get a call from them shortly when that's confirmed who the winner is. But who else do you think might be having a look around? Oh look, I think you'll have the usual array of institutions, you know, so there's a everyone would know there's a number of Canadian pension funds and other North American money uh, that's very active, you know, in the market there. I think we'll have, you know, the active high net works as well. And so I think you all know, you know, who those sorts of groups are in your market there. Um, we might have some that are from outside of your market as well. So there's some people that have done exceptionally well on the East Coast, you know, as uh, high net worth farming families who are, you know, looking for the next opportunity and looking for value. So it wouldn't surprise me if we had, you know, groups or syndicates out of Western Victoria, you know, New South Wales, you know, looking for that geographic hedge and wanting to come West as well. Uh, locals, so you know when we when we think of locals, I, I suppose at the top of the list some usual suspects: Kerry Stokes, Gina Reinhardt, Andrew, or Nicola Forrest. You expecting any calls from that group? Yeah, look, I, I think all of those people always look for good opportunities in the market. This is blue chip. 
this is the sort of asset that could sit in any of their portfolios, particularly given they've all got long investment horizons, the sort of asset that should be in their portfolios. So, yes, I would expect to hear from some or all of them, but, you know, they don't have the market to themselves. So there'll be a, another tier of, you know, very wealthy people um, and serial market participants that I expect will come in for it as well. Danny, great to talk. Thank you. Good on you, Belinda. Thank you. Danny Thomas, he is a senior director at LAWD, the company handling the sale of that property. 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour and Andrea Mays is here with an update from the newsroom. Hello. Hello. Western Australia has recorded more than 3,500 cases of COVID-19 this week. There are 140 people in hospital with the virus, eight are in intensive care. There have been 19 COVID-related deaths reported in the past seven days. The Attorney-General's Department will consider an investigation into a book that revealed former Prime Minister Scott Morrison was secretly appointed to ministerial portfolios. John Reid from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet has told Senate estimates the Department did not know Mr Morrison was briefing the book's authors during the coronavirus pandemic. He says the book contains information that would usually be protected by Cabinet confidentiality. And the Perth Scorchers have won the toss and elected to bat against the Adelaide Strikers in their WBBL cricket clash at Queensland's Allen Borderfield. The Scorchers could move above the Brisbane Heat at the top of the table with a victory today. More news, Belinda, at one. Andrea, thank you so much for that update. It is 26 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Between now and the news at 1, Danny Burkett along just before 1. He'll go through the wool market details for you, the market down this week, and we'll check out who was buying where that wool was going, I think China, pretty much every week, isn't it? And also uh, taking a look at fish and trying to find a way of making sure that when you're in a, a cafe or a, or a restaurant, you can be guaranteed, if they say that the fish you're eating is Australian, that it actually is. So taking a closer look at that shortly. In a moment, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Twenty-four to one. You're tuned to the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology now, and Catherine Shelfout with you this afternoon. Catherine, let's take a look around the Southwest Land Division. Hi, Belinda. Yes, look, a little bit of cloud around uh, the southwest today. There's certainly um, some thunderstorms out to the east, but yeah, mainly um, actually a pretty nice day for most of the southwest land division today. So there's a low that's sitting over the southern Gascoyne and the northern goldfields. So um, probably the main effect, other than it being a nice day, is it might be a little bit windy out there. Um, fresh southeasterlies uh, through much of the southern half, so it might feel colder than the actual temperature's saying. Um, yeah, so rainfall sitting out the east. Um, 
things are going to change a little bit tomorrow. So we'll see that low moving further south and um, certainly the southeasterly is picking up a bit as that pressure gradient increases. Um, so the low will kind of stretch out into a bit of a trough and there's a mid-level trough sitting over it as well. So what we'll start to see is some showers and thunderstorms developing probably from around midnight tonight and then um, through Saturday morning. And they'll start to develop over the lower west around the Perth region uh, and then extend uh, southeast during the day. So um, through uh, through the Great Southern and down towards Esperance looks like it'll be sort of the, the main rain band. So yeah, showers and uh, thunderstorms through there. Rainfall we're expecting is around 10 to 20 millimetres with isolated falls up to 30 through that band and then sort of dropping off either side of that. So maybe 5 to 10 millimetres sort of around that far southwest corner um, and and 2 to 10 for northern parts of the wheat belt and through the central west. Um, so we'll see that all start to move east um, later in the day uh, into Sunday. And then quite a cold um, pool of air coming up over the southwest corner during Sunday morning. So uh, showers continuing along the south coast uh, during Sunday and maybe some small hail possible with that as well, just being uh, quite cold. So... Um, yeah, a bit, bit of showery activity over the south. Um, from Sunday night into Monday, really we see a ridge moving in um, as is more typical for this time of the year. So um, conditions will start to ease. Showers will contract much more to the south coast and uh, we'll see those sort of fresh southwesterly winds and then becoming southeasterly as the ridge settles in over Monday and Tuesday. But certainly uh, much clearer conditions over the southern half for those latter two days. And Catherine, what does that all mean for northern and east parts of the state. Yeah, look, it's been a really sort of stagnant pool of air sitting over the Kimberley, so it's still really hot over the eastern Kimberley. Um, I can see there's just a little bit of thunderstorm activity up in the northeast today, um, but it'll be mostly clear for the Kimberley for the next few days and no change to those really hot temperatures uh, until right till the end of next week when they'll start to see some more thunderstorm activity. Uh, through the Pilbara, yeah, clear today, but um, also with the trough sitting through the centre of the state, uh, it's pretty windy up there, so they'll get really fresh sort of northwest to southwesterly winds and a bit gusty um, today and tomorrow and into Sunday as well uh, before they start to go back to that more southeasterly uh, surge that's typical when a ridge moves in uh, from Monday and also starting to see um, some fire dangers getting up into the extreme range for Monday for the Headland and Ashburton Coast districts. And the warnings for this afternoon? So for today, yeah, we've got strong wind warnings sitting around the coast, uh, south of Geraldton, right around um, down to the Lewin corner. And uh, from tomorrow, that um, strong wind warning area along the coast will really stretch uh, further along um, as we see uh, the trough developing. Great. Thank you so much for all those details, Catherine. Appreciate that. It is 21 to 1. Uh, no rainfall over five millimetres anywhere across the state in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. And just wanted to let you know there was a fire today northeast of Walcatcham. I think it had the dubious honour of being one of the first crop fires this season. About 100 hectares was burnt, but I'm told it's under control now and on its way to being out. And there was apparently a magnificent turnout of volunteers and they got it under control pretty quickly. 20 to 1. Um, a few moments ago, I was catching up with Danny Thomas from LAWD talking about Sheraton Farms, which has just hit the market and expected to fetch around 
$90 million, $90 million plus dollars, Danny reckons. And I was asking Danny when a property was sold in WA for, you know, around about that $90 million ballpark. And the record holder is the Smarts Eragulla Plains property near Minganyu, which was sold for $97.62 million to Daybreak Cropping in the early 2020. Uh, and in response to that story, Jacko says, yes, some blue chip land going into foreign hands. Soon the Australian family farm will be a thing of history. That's Jacko's thoughts anyway. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four to text through and have your say between now and the news at one. Nineteen to one. Have you ever ordered fish from a restaurant thinking it was Australian? But once you started eating it, you're thinking to yourself, I wonder where this fish has really come from. And you should be thinking that because some restaurants use fish names like Whiting, Barramundi or Snapper when they're selling fish that's actually been caught in another country. WA Fishing Industry Council CEO Daryl Hockey is hoping country of origin labelling in the food service sector, so the restaurants and cafes, things like that, will actually stop imported fish being passed off as Australian. Because, he says, you have the right to certainty when paying for Australian produce. At the moment, if you buy fish in the retail shops, if you go into a supermarket or whatever, it's, it's, it's law that they've got to be they've got to be labelled with the country of origin. I mean, sometimes, unfortunately, the writing's a bit small. You've got to look hard for it, but that's a requirement. But when it comes to restaurants or cafes or fish and chip shops, that's not um, a requirement. And we, we just simply want um, an opportunity for the consumer to make an informed choice so that they know that it's either amazing quality local WA or Australian seafood or whether it's imported. I was reading a report this morning which said that twice the amount of barramundi as is grown in Australia is sold in Australia. So how much of a problem is it where seafood is sold where it perhaps gives the impression that it's Australian but it's not? Yeah, look, that's a massive problem, unfortunately, particularly with something like barrel, barrel which is in such high demand. Um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is what with marine parks, sanctuary zones in, in the north of Western Australia at the moment, it means that there's very little barramundi now available to consumers. Um, and so we either import it from Queensland or the Northern Territory. There's limited amounts there. So there's always the the, the danger that they'll import that from overseas. In Asia, there's a product called Asian sea bass, which is very similar looking to barra, but it's not barra. And unfortunately, there's a temptation there when, when there's a good price on the plate to for people to put um, something else on there to, uh, to, to, to fool the customer. Do you think that happens? Oh, look, we, we hear um, anecdotal reports of this happening all of the time. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a really good example. I'm not talking about the hospitality sector now, but I was in the supermarket a couple of months ago. There was some barramundi there sold with big barrel words across the front, so we assumed it was Australian. Um, and then it said that it was sprinkled with Murray River salt and honey lemon myrtle. So I'm assuming that this is an Australian product. I turned it over and it was sourced from Vietnam. So clearly people know that there's a premium if you market something and, and portray it as if it's local Australian product. The price of local product is going up all the time. 
the stuff that's coming in from overseas is quite cheap. So if somebody can just slip the label one way or the other, they can make a really good margin. What about things like Whiting and Emperor, which are really kind of classic names that we associate with Australia or WA in particular? Do you see areas where they're substituted with imported product? Oh, yeah, that happens all the time. Um, you know, for instance, with the whiting, you know, we think that it's King George whiting or yellowtail, which is an amazing and beautiful local product. Um, quite often it's blue whiting that's brought in from New Zealand, which is a completely different product. Um, with with emperor species, yes, that can, they, they bring a lot of snapper species, assorted snapper species, which come in from the tropics, quite often caught unsustainably. Um and, you know, that's just substituted and it was called local emperor or local snapper. So, unfortunately, it is rife and, and look, you know, it's going to be very difficult to control. But we believe that, the, as I said, the customer needs to make an informed choice. If they choose to have some of the cheap imported stuff, fine, if that's what they want to do. We just want them to know what they're actually buying at the time because it gets a bit muddied when, um, when there's a substitution of labels. There is so much conversation at the moment around uh, fishing in WA about the sustainability of fishing rates. You've also got pressure from marine parks that you've you've touched on. Do you think that this will drive up the cost of local fish if we do have this labelling system? Do you think restaurants will see it as their a free pass to charge more for the local product? Oh, oh, certainly not. We would we would see that it's just providing some integrity to the system, and then and it gives people the comfort that that what they're getting is the right product. Because if you're going to have to start paying more and more for a plate of fish, which we are, because of all those things you talked about, and not just marine parks, but it's wind farms and other areas which are sort of stealing away water. Um, obviously the price is going to go up. We've already seen the prices go up over the last six months or so, up to four, four to five dollars a piece in fish and chip shops. So if people are going to have to pay more for that, they need the surety that they're getting what they ask for. Otherwise, the confidence will fall away from the industry altogether and people will walk off and start buying pork or lamb or something else. WA Fishing Industry Council CEO Daryl Hockey with Joe Prendergast. 13 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. As you just heard, barramundi is one of the key fish species that's being affected by a lack of transparency in the food service trade. Barramundi Group operates fish farms in Singapore and Brunei, as well as here in the Kimberley, just off the coast of Derby. General Manager of its Australian business, Alastair Smart, says the more information available to you, the better. Consumers just really, you know, have a right to know where their seafood's coming from so they can make informed choices. As we know, a lot of the time it's not that very that clear. So it's just having that clarity about you knowing what you're buying. And if it's no, if you want to buy an imported product, that's fine if you if you know. But it, it's not that nice to be. You want to be buying an Australian product that uh, is actually not that. And I suppose you're in a bit of a unique situation with Barramundi Group because you have farms in Singapore and Brunei. Is that something yeah. that you think would be advantageous for the group? Yeah, what's your take on it? Absolutely. No, 100%. We're, I mean, we're, we're looking at the moment, as you're probably aware, anyway, to, to make the uh, Australian company more Australian. And we're at, that's what, so that's one element of it. But irrespective of that, the, the product that's being produced overseas is, is used for overseas markets. None of it's coming to Australia. But even if it is, we'd be happy that it was 
clearly labelled as um, product from either Brunei or Singapore. But, you know, it's just that the, the market over there is so massive. There's no, not really a situation where we're looking to uh, bring it into this market here. So, uh, but if, if it was to change, we'd be 100% happy for that to be the case because it's just about provenance and having an informed choice from consumers. And it should be a basic expectation that you know what you're eating. What is the demand for Australian produced barramundi and how do you see it in, compared to other similar types of fish? It's, well, it's really growing um, and, and uh, some of the sort of consumer surveys that have been done are showing the popularity of, of barramundi is really growing. And there's definitely, as we've seen through COVID, been a push for you know, supporting uh, Australian grown produce because there's, we've got strong regulatory environments. So there's, you know, there's the food safety angle. There's an understanding that we've grown that product and produced it under fairly strict regulations that ensure a, a level of safety, which is appreciated by Australian consumers and it's also appreciated by overseas consumers when we export it offshore. So product coming in, we know is not under those same checks and balances. It's, you know, it's often developing nation produced, which is why it's cheaper in many respects as well, because that obviously adds cost. And, you know, there is that unfair playing field aspect as well, which, which as long as you know what you're buying into, that's fine, um, because there's a place for that. Barramundi Group Australia General Manager Alastair Smart speaking to Steph Sinclair. 11 minutes to one here on The Country Hour. This just through from Nicola who says, um, talking about local fish, she went to Augusta yesterday, had snapper fish and chips for lunch and the shop advertises its local fish and she says it's always very good but would like to know the fish is local. Uh, Thank you for that, Nicola. And I guess maybe with this... Country of origin labelling, if it gets over the line and all sorted, you will know that for sure where it's come from, Australia or overseas. It is 10 to 1, news for you at 1 o'clock and going to be catching up with Danny Burkett just before that to go through the wool market details. The eastern market indicator is down 23 cents. Here in the west, the western market indicator down 42 cents. Uh, Danny will explain what is going on in the wool market for you very shortly. Uh, Right now, to the Kimberley, where it's the end of an era at the Ord River District Cooperative, as Chief Executive David Cross hangs up his boots. Now, David's worked for the co-op for 20 years, including 14 years at its helm. He says he knows he's going to miss the Ord Valley, and I'm pretty sure the Ord Valley farming community is going to miss him too. I haven't come across many people like him. Um, he's not only the CEO of the, our farm supply agribusiness, he also has a passion for the ord and the crops that we grow here and his input and investment into researching and finding a crop that will be a good fit to the ord will be his legacy, I suppose. Yeah, a bit of mixed emotions, uh, certainly as we get closer to the, to the finish line. Um, it's, it's been a really great opportunity for me to look back over the 20-year journey and I'm, I'm really fortunate that I've been given the opportunities that I have and I'm, and I'm really proud of, of being able to, to lead such an iconic northern agribusiness and, um, and really proud of all the things we've done over, over two decades. Crossy's not only a very astute businessman but he's also a great mate and an easy person to get along with so he brings all those things to the table and he'll be sorely missed. Yeah I came to the Ord in January 2002 as a as a really really green junior graduate agronomist um, and 
over time, um, my role obviously evolved, it changed. Um, I was given some opportunities at a really young age um, to progress, which um, again, on reflection, uh, you know, I'm really fortunate that people had a, had a great deal of faith in me to, to sort of step up into some of those more senior management positions at a, at a pretty young age, to be, to be fair. I was probably a little bit naive to that at the time. Um, and to be honest, that was probably a good thing. I've now been chief executive of the business for the past 14 years and, and I've been really fortunate that um, I've been able to, to be a part of watching the, the valley grow as a whole and also being a part of this business growing alongside it as well. I've never met anybody that can, that can build teams like, like David and, and do new things that nobody's got any idea of and then after a season or two have experts within that team just the can-do attitude, the ability to to make a win-win out of out of difficult situations, and he's just such a good communicator. If there's ever a difficult situation and you don't quite know what to say, you look across at Crossy and um, and you give David the nod and say, "Mate, you better say something clever." It will nearly always blow you away what what intelligent, articulate, and positive words flow out of David and and he puts a huge amount of effort into what he does. I've seen certainly some crop types change over time and that's um, that's synonymous with the history of the ord and and my view on that is I, I certainly do not see that as a as a any as a failure of, of any sort I, I actually see it as a real tr- really tremendous advantage of the region to be able to flex to be able to pivot um, move on to new opportunities as they come. In the early years of starting up farming up here, I relied heavily on his experience and knowledge to, to get me through and, and make sure that we were making the right decisions and he took those decisions on as, as though he was, were his own. So, um, yeah, we're forever grateful for, for David for that. So, thank you. For me, a place is a place. It's a physical thing. And, and don't get me wrong, this is a really cool place to live and, and to work. But for me, it's, a, it's been about the people. Um, and that's, that's across the full spectrum around customers, suppliers, um, and certainly the team within Ordco that I've been really fortunate to work within. That's, for me, that's really been the highlight. There's, there's some amazing people that live and work in the north and they've got that that pioneering spirit because I, I think the north still has quite a bit of development to do um, and particularly the Ord and Kununurra being a, a pretty young place still. Um, I, I really love that that spirit that the, that the people have. The things that, that I have learnt from David are only just starting to sink in um, but it, it's given given me a great amount of joy and peace to have had him at the helm of such an iconic company. Oh, isn't that nice? Some really nice words from some of the farming community in the Ord, Fitz, Bolton and Matt Gray, just reflecting on the contribution outgoing Ord Co CEO David Cross has had on the farming community. And you also heard David in there too, with today his last day in the top job. So all the best to you. It is four minutes to one. A few moments ago, you heard from Daryl Hockey. He's the CEO of the WA Fishing Industry Council, and he was just talking about how he's hoping that country of origin labelling in the food service sector, so the cafes and the restaurants, 
when that happens, it's going to stop all that fish being passed off as Australian. So there's still that little loophole there um, that you can say it's Australian when maybe it's not. But um, if this comes off, that's going to change. If you want to see the online story, uh, Joe Prendergast and Steph Sinclair have put the online story together. Just search ABC Country Fish Restaurant and you'll find their online story. Search ABC Country Fish Restaurant to check out the online story. It's three minutes to one. Let's get to the bull market, shall we? And the Eastern Market indicator this week is down 23 cents to close at 1,300 cents a kilogram clean. And the Western Market indicator is down 42 cents to close at 1,427 cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, what's the story? Yes, we did have a pretty large falls in Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle, if you look at it in Aussie terms. But interesting note, if you look at the Eastern Market Indicator expressed in US terms, it only fell three cents for the week, which says to me we've got a wool market being played out more in the exchange rate than anything else at the moment. In Fremantle, 18 micron fell 30 cents to close at 17.75. And if we look back over the last two years, probably from the worst of the pandemic from where we are today, 18 micron at today's price is sitting at the 25th decile. That's saying that it's spent 75% of its time above today's price. 19 micron closed at 15.60. That was 45 cheaper for the week. And again, if we look at that in a decile ranking, that sits at the 30% mark, so 70% of its time above today's price. 20 micron off 55, closing at 14.15. Now that sits at the 75th decile. So in the last two years, it's only spent 25% of its time above today's price. 21 microns off 40, 13.30 on the close. The 80th decile, so only 20% above today's price. And 22 micron minus 50 for the week, closing at 12.75. That's at the 70% decile mark. Pieces and bellies. Pretty much the fine end, regardless of VM, was off 50, mediums off 40. If we look at the oddment market, lambs fully firm again this week. Clocks, we had up 20, stains and crutchings par for the week. And I will make the comment again, if we're looking at those merino fleece quotes, the higher mid-breaks, which force or plays out to a higher CV of hauteur, they are not quoted in the market, so they are trading at a lot cheaper levels than what the quotes I've just given. Who was buying, Danny? Well, great to see. We had tech wool in the market. They took 22.5% of the merino fleece wool. That's a large chunk of the offering. But given that it wasn't a large offering, that equated to 4,320 bales. TNU, the next largest buyer, at 10%. Morris Wool's 10%. Endeavour will export at 8%. Just worth noting again, tech will trading, the biggest buyer in the crossbred market, the second largest buyer in the skirtings and the fourth largest buyer in the oddments. So again, this week, I would suggest tech will trading had roughly $10 million out in the marketing capital to trade that wool. And for next week, how many bales are on offer? We have just over 43,000. That is shared between Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle. As I said before, I would suggest this market will play out more with interest rate movements than anything else in the next week if what has played out in the last fortnight continues. I think the US Fed Reserve sits on the 1st and 2nd of November, so if they have a bullish rise, play out very well for the Australian wool market. Tony, thank you for going through those details. We'll catch up again this time next week. Tony Burkett going through the wool market.
Good to talk to you today. Time for the news. One o'clock.